0: Welcome to the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare.
1: Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what's currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy, My name is Mike Gagneau. I'm Senior Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality with ASHP, and joining me for today's episode are Dr. Kathy Yang, Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacist at UCSF San Francisco Medical Center, and Dr. Monica Mahoney, Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And today we're going to talk about COVID-19 prevention and management in the immunocompromised population. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us again, Mike. Thank you, Mike, for finally telling everyone where I work in the introduction. Well,
1: you know, how many podcasts is this now? And so for our listeners, as a reminder, there were two sessions. One was at a mid-year clinical meeting. One was at a summer meeting. And this novel format is to extend the opportunity to share new and breaking news through the podcast series that follows each one up. And this series just so you're not confused and keeping score on your scorecard at home. This is an extension of the mid-year meeting presentation from Las Vegas last year. So we'll keep to our usual format and I will turn to Kathy first. Kathy, what can you tell us about just the general state of things? Where are we with COVID cases, vaccinations, et cetera?
0: Yeah. So thanks, Mike. I feel like a broken record, but let's just talk about where we are. So since our last podcast, we've seen a little bit of a uptick in COVID cases. I don't want to call it a surge because it's not really a surge. I love PKs. There's no peaks and troughs in this one. It's more like a little prolonged infusion here. We are seeing about a 12% rise in hospitalizations. The good thing is that they're not associated so far with any increased level of death. So the big question is, why are we seeing a summer uptick? And you know, my daughter asked me the same question for her public health class. And the one thing I wanted to blame was Taylor Swift because she had a lot of concerts and those concerts are monstrous. We will talk about Taylor Swift later when we talk about the name of the new variant. But everybody's getting outside. And the other reason is it's really hot. So, for the people who are in really hot places and they're not going outside, they're hunkering down in their AFC. And so that's keeping people sort of inside. So, that's basically where we are with cases. Unfortunately, I sound like a broken record when we talk about vaccines. It's still pretty abysmal. So the total population, only 17% has had their bivalent vaccine. It's better in the older patients, 43%, and it's pretty low still in pregnant and pediatrics. So this is where we got to get the word out and really encourage vaccination. And then lastly, the new variant that everyone is talking about in the news, here's the Taylor Swift theme again, It's called Eris, not ERAS like the TOR, E-R-A-S. It's actually E-R-I-S. It's an Omicron variant, and it's called EG.5. So this is the new variant of concern. It is outpacing the XBV, which is what it was before. So it's about 20% right now, and it likely will sort of overcome all the other variants within the next couple weeks. So this is sort of the concern right now. And why are we concerned? It does look like it will have more immune escape. And it does look like it binds the ACE2 receptor a little bit more strongly. So it's a little bit more infectious. But again, so far, we have no evidence that it is causing worse disease. So that's the good news. And so far, we have evidence that the vaccines work, even the new monovalent XBB that is coming out in the fall. So that's everything in a nutshell.
1: Great. Actually, so you answered one of my questions. I I was going to ask if we know anything about the new variants you mentioned in Uniscape and any information we have with either the existing bivalence or the anticipated monovalence. So thanks for already addressing that. The other question I have is, so you mentioned it's hot out, people are starting to gather indoors. And by the time this episode drops. Did I use that right? I mean we're doing all the Taylor Swift references, right? So by the time this episode drops, it's going to be school time, right? So you've got colleges, college campuses, schools. Should we be concerned there?
0: So yes and no. So we just have to accept that this is our normal, right? This it's endemic at this point. Once everybody goes back to school, we just need to accept that we will see an uptick in cases. That's just what it is. We're just going to have to accept that but how do we respond? Are we going to go back into lockdown again? God, no, we're not going to do that. So we have to just test, you know, if you're sick, stay at home and everybody has to get vaccinated because the key to remember is it will keep you from dying. So even with the new variants, the vaccine effectiveness seems pretty durable even in the immune compromised patients, it's going down a little bit with each variant, but it's still pretty good. So the bottom line is just get your vaccine.
1: Great. And I was going to ask to tie that back to the immune compromised patient, since we can tell the general population, go get your vaccine and it helps. But during the search for our immune compromised patients, are there any extra precautions, extra vaccine doses, anything that they should keep in mind?
0: So, so far, no. So the CDC recommendations on vaccination are still the same as they were the last time we had a podcast. Amazingly, something stayed the same. So just stay up to date on the vaccines. Whether or not you need to mask is really up to you. If you're uncomfortable, if you're at high risk, I would mask. If you're not necessarily at high risk, it's probably less important, as we know what else can we do? You know, it's just the normal stuff until we have better passive immunity coming down in the pipeline.
1: Great. Thanks. And I know Monica is just waiting to weigh in with Taylor Swift references. So I'm going to turn to Monica now. And what about therapeutics? What's new with our existing therapeutics? Is there anything that we should be aware of looking toward the future?
2: First, I have to say that you all missed perfect opportunity to weave cruel summer in there when you're talking about all the Taylor Swift references. Come on, guys. This is where, this See, is where look what here. you made me do. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> we need a counter here. Um, <laughs> those are the only two I had prepared. The, the rest will be spontaneous. So I think one of the biggest changes, and at this point, it's already a couple of months old, is that the FDA finally approved Dermatrivir, or Paxlovid, for those of you who still don't want to pronounce a generic name. So back in May, the FDA did grant approval to the medication. However, it's only for adults that are at risk of developing severe disease. So what does that mean for our pediatric patients or patients that maybe fall outside of that criteria? So we're kind of in this weird limbo of dual status, right? The exact same medication, nermatvir, in in the same doses and the same strengths, just one is technically approved by the FDA. The other is still under emergency use authorization. And this eventually will have implications on who can prescribe. Physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, they can prescribe the FDA-approved version. They can also prescribe the emergency use authorization version. Pharmacists are still authorized, still able to prescribe the emergency use authorization, not the FDA-approved version, or at least we assume it's not, it hasn't been explicitly stated, but we assume that it will revert back to what it was. The distinction is important because if you recall, the emergency use authorization does go down to pediatrics. So patients are age 12 and older. So there is that window of 12 to 18 that pharmacists right now can have an impact on the emergency use authorization product. Additionally, there is the issue of what product is available for ordering. Even though it is FDA approved, it's not in commercial warehouses. The nermatvirotonavir that we are able to dispense to our patients is still federally distributed, and it's still the excess surplus for the emergency use authorization. So when that switch happens to the commercially available product may impact whether or not pharmacists are still allowed and involved in the prescribing. And additionally, you know how pediatrics will be rolled into it, will there exist an emergency use authorization for the pediatric population until we get that full FDA approval? Some changes, although I don't think it's really impacted practice, today, right now, in a couple of months, a couple of weeks, it might change. But as of right now, we're kind of in this, this weird limbo um, where we're still using the emergency use authorization product and pharmacists still have the capabilities and the abilities to prescribe.
1: And just to add some context, there have been some commercialization webinars that HHS and ASPR have hosted. And They've made it clear we're looking at potentially shifting to a commercial marketplace for molnupiravir by the end of this year, but they haven't estimated a timeline for nermatravir, ritonavir. And I think it's because there's so much inventory. We were just talking before recording that there's a lot of inventory out there. And so at current use rate, we're not really sure when that shift will occur. So keep an eye on that with relation to when the commercial product might be available and how pharmacists can prescribe. So. Speaking of molnupiravir, any news there, Monica?
2: There were a couple of studies that came out. The Panoramic trial published, although I think that was out last time, so I'm going to not really spend time on there. But there was a large meta-analysis of molnupiravir that was published a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago in JAC. They actually reviewed 14 trials, so combined 34, 35,000 patients. And overall, what they found was there was a reduction in the risk of hospitalization, risk of mechanical ventilation, and time to symptom resolution for patients who did take molnupiravir compared to placebo. But there were no significant differences found in adverse events, all-cause mortality, rate and time to viral clearance, or duration of hospitalization. So the drug does seem to work. Where are we using it in our grand scheme of things or algorithm? I think people are still reaching for nirmatviratonavir first when possible. It's oral. It has possibly more data associated with it. However, we do know that the drug interactions persist with the ritonavir component. If patients cannot use nematavir or ritonavir, you know, maybe remdesivir is an option, although problems with that, it is an infusion. How do we get patients into chairs or home infusion companies able to provide it? And I think if those two options aren't possible, then people are reaching towards malnupiravir.
1: And so, again, to tie this back to our immune-compromised patients who might have some drug interactions with the ritonavir that can't be mitigated, it seems like the malnipiravir is still a viable option for that patient population it's worth pursuing.
2: Yes, absolutely. If you have a patient that's high risk and our immunocompromised patients definitely fall into this bucket, even with their vaccines, there's a risk versus benefit. And I think receiving this medication has shown to prevent some of these serious complications that are associated with the disease. It is a big pill burden. So that is something to counsel patients on, but it is available. It is oral and it is something that we can provide our patients.
1: Great. And then I think for either of you, we're starting to hear about some new therapeutics that might be coming out. there is an oral formulation of essentially what would result in the same drug that Rindesivir results in in the body and then another longer acting preventive pre-exposure prophylaxis type monoclonal. Either one of you want to weigh in on what you're hearing there?
0: Well, I'll weigh in on the monoclonal. So AstraZeneca does have a new drug that they are testing in clinical trials. This is in what's called the supernova trial And this is a combination monoclonal, actually, it's a BNAB. It's a broad neutralizing antibody combination. It has a combination of sulgabamab, which was an Evusheld, and a new monoclonal antibody in it as well. It's right now going through clinical trials. And there was data presented at ECMED just a couple months ago that showed that it was durable against all the circulating variants of the time. Of course, that was a few months ago. So we haven't actually seen all the data on this, but my understanding is they are getting ready to move this forward. Of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the room will be, does it work against EG.5? And so we will see. We're always playing catch-up with monoclonal antibodies, as we know. We're always a little bit behind, and the virus keeps getting a little bit smarter each time, but this one looks very promising. So we'll see how it goes, and I'm really excited to see what the data shows.
2: And then in terms of the oral remdesivir, I don't think it has a name yet. It has letters and numbers, VV116. There was an article that was published in New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year, I think February and it was a phase three trial and it was really cool because it was an active control trial. It wasn't versus placebo, which a lot of our other trials against our COVID therapeutics were placebo controlled, but this was active control. So about 800 patients, half of them received the oral remdesivir VV116 and about half of them received oral nirmatravir ritonavir. Now, interestingly, they changed the primary endpoints. You know, no longer is it prevention of death. No longer is it prevention of hospitalization. It is more time to resolution of symptoms. And this study showed that there was no difference between the two medications. So promising, hopefully in the future, I'm not positive on what the timeline is of bringing this to market or when we will be able to use this for our patients, but, you know, eagerly awaiting because if we can get away from that infusion, that would solve a lot of our coordination headaches currently.
1: And of course, improving, well, I guess it's saying the same thing differently, but improving access to patients who nermatribil or ritonavir just isn't an option rather than doing the infusions, you now have another viable oral candidate. So as a non-infectious disease expert, does that change in endpoint make sense to you?
2: It does, because I think the virus has changed. The population has changed, right? Most of us have immunity or some kind of protection either from vaccination or previous infection or a combination of both. So we have some inherent protection as well. And I think the virus, as we're seeing different endpoints and less hospitalizations, like Kathy said herself, so it would be an impossible endpoint to chase. You'd need so many patients enrolled to try to show that prevention. So I think this is an appropriate change and pivot in the surrogate endpoint to still show efficacy. And just also want to hammer home the point that you were kind of getting at, but oral remdesivir would be fantastic because then we have another oral option that doesn't have that ritonavir component. So we could use it in our patients that have drug interactions like our patients with immunocompromise.
1: That's perfect. That's kind of where my mind goes immediately. It seems like it might be a death knell to but you know that remains to be seen. Who knows what access issues are going to, you know, there is still government-supplied or any other therapeutics that come out probably are going to hit the commercial marketplace. So, you know, then you have access issues and payer issues to navigate. So anything else on top of mind as we kind of approach the fall for this topic as far as COVID or immune-compromised patients?
2: So I think it's what you just said. It's that insurer coverage or commercial coverage, particularly with the public health emergency declaration expiring back in May. There are a lot of looming deadlines. In May, a lot of coverages ended, in particular things like commercial insurances covering free at-home COVID tests. That's no longer a thing. Commercial insurances have the option of covering it, but I think the big ones don't. So if you want to purchase your own home COVID test, it's out of pocket. Medicare and Medicaid additionally are not covering those tests. They're not covering the at-home tests. They're only covering tests if your clinician, if your provider specifically orders it. So you're going to a clinic or you're going to a center to get tested. It's no longer um, convenient at-home testing. Additionally, you know, currently the vaccines are still covered and provided free. The therapeutics, I think that is a little more of a gray area. The insurers have an option of covering them. I think that they are moving away from it and there are additional expirations that come, you know, the future come the fall, they may no longer cover um, and you'd be responsible for a copay. This is a huge access and equity issue, particularly for patients that don't have insurance or uninsured. There are online resources where you can try to find either free masks or free testing sites or free medications. The Health and Human Services, they have a website. I tried playing around with it, putting in my information as if I was an uninsured patient. Where could I go? On the surface level, it appeared that there were, you know, retail pharmacies that you can go and you can get testing for free and you can get your medication for free, but I'm sure there's fine print that there may be charges associated with that. So at least for me, really difficult to navigate how to find full coverage for patients that maybe don't have insurance coverage. Kathy, I don't know how it is for you over in California, if you're seeing the same kind of struggles and issues.
0: Well, I think I agree with everything you say. I think the only thing I would add is a lot of these coverage gaps will tend to be state specific. Because many states do have separate legislation requiring private insurances within their state to provide testing or COVID test or, you know, whatever on a deadline basis. And it may not be that they don't cover it, it's just there will be cost sharing associated with it, which is probably going to be the cost sharing that is associated with their normal insurance So I think the big question actually will become, what about vaccines? So as we move into these new vaccines, you know, HHS does have a process that they are putting in place for uninsured. So that includes for kids, the vaccines for children program. And then for adults who are uninsured, there is a bridge access program that includes pharmacies from CVS and Walgreens. And I think the other one's called e true North. So There are options. So for pharmacists who are providing vaccines, if they do have an uninsured patient, they would just have to refer them to one of these sites to get their vaccine. So I think there'll be more information on that coming. The coverage always seems like a black hole thing. Like we never know what's going on, right? So it's something that you just have to figure out within your own state because it's very different. East Coast, West Coast, South, it's all a little bit mishmash.
1: All right. Well, I think, as you noted, we'll have more to talk about in the third and final podcast in this series. That's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Kathy Yang and Dr. Monica Mahoney for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 and the immunocompromised population. As usual, you two bring some style to the podcast. There you go. Another another reference. I've been converted. If you haven't before, I encourage you to check out ASHP's online resources, such as the COVID-19 Resource Center, The living handout from the original webinar will be updated and posted with this podcast recording. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content.
0: Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts.